Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. In our last podcast, we explored the history of the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. The military engagements of November 18th and the 21st of 1836 were militarily inconclusive, as were so many near the cove of the Withlacoochee River. General Cole's campaign failed to achieve its objective of neutralizing the Seminole resistance to involuntary removal. In this episode, archaeologist Sean Norman describes what he and the survey team from the Gulf Archaeological Research Institute, or Gary, from Crystal River, Florida, reported and concluded about the site and what purported to happen there. Sean Norman, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Sean, what was Gary's purpose for doing a survey of the Battle of Wahoo Swamp site? The idea was see if we could pin down the location of the battle, find an initial starting point. The project for the Battle of Wahoo Swamp was an American Battlefield Protection Grant conducted by Jonathan Dean, Gary Ellis, Ken Nash, and myself. And it was a project to document the history of Richard Keith Call's 1836 campaign and the history and archaeology of the concluding actions at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp, November 18th and November 21st, 1836. We conducted the project Over the last three years, we're in the process of finalizing a draft at the moment. When did you conduct it? We started the project in August 2017, and we're concluding right now in uh, September 2020. Why did you want to survey this? This is a a long series of projects that Gary Ellis saw coming a couple decades ago. Builds in with the Battles of the Whiplacoochee, Camp Izzard, Fort King Road. A lot of these projects are all being put together to give a better perspective on the early engagements of the war in the Cove of the Whiplacoochee. This is next step. Some of Call's actions could be considered battles on the Whiplacoochee, but this is really own entity of itself, just the whole series of complicated maneuvers and then the conclusion. Actions. How did you engage with the community and historical societies to enhance your efforts? One of the steps that we did was we had a public day where people who had any information about the Wahoo Swamp, if they had land in the area or if they just had any general interest in it, we invited them to come out. We met in Bushnell, Florida, and we just talked to people. Out of that, what happened is we met Arthur Hayes and the Sumter County Historical Society, and they have had a long interest in this. Arthur has been investigating the battle for almost two decades. They went over their historical research and their previous fieldwork that they had engaged. They had done some metal detecting and their interpretation of the landscape feature. That gave us a model to start testing. In thinking of it ourselves, it all came down to interpreting certain key features from the primary document. The problem was is everyone described the landscape very different. They're talking about wetlands and it's difficult to track how many wetlands they move through and all that, trying to focus on key things like the bottleneck for the conclusion of the battle. What happened was by engaging Sumter County Historical Society, that opened up a few other avenues to address model. Another person contacted us, a man named Clifford Lynn Hayes, Arthur's cousin and a longtime resident of the Wahoo. And, uh, Arthur had written his own unpublished manuscript on the Battle of Wahoo Swamp and Call's campaign, and he was nice enough to provide it and give us his interpretations of the engagement. Whereas the Historical Society 
had plotted out series of engagement with lulls in between them. The battle took place in almost three small parts, and they based this off of a map that was drawn the following spring by Lieutenant Prince. Some of the key features as he's walking through and mentioning the battle, even though he wasn't actually at the engagement himself. They mapped out these features in his map and following the limited upland that's in the area today and concluded that they three engagements, one at Grant Slough, one at Battle Slough, and then one further down closer to the Whitlacoochee River, but not quite there, somewhere around Gum Slough. Alternatively, Lynn Hayes's idea was a more traditional model, in which case the battle ends at a bottleneck Battle Slough hence why it's called Battle Slew to this day, closer to where the historical marker is. That's just normally where the battle is thought to conclude. Another one was we spoke to colleague and historian Jesse Marshall, who's just an absolute wealth of knowledge and pleasure to talk to. Jesse had given his opinions on the engagement. He had once again focused on the pitch point. What he did was rather than going off the local history, he went on the idea that trying to match the geography to the description, which is what the other people had done too, just in a different way. Jesse had concluded that there was another set of, of ponds or lakes nearby, not on Battle Slough, where the engagement actually took place. To support this, he had, I remember speaking to somebody at a reenactment 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe even earlier, somebody was selling musket balls that they had supposedly collected from, from doing metal detecting at the Battle of Wahoo Swamp. And Jesse was able to provide us a map of where he believed that was the case. That gave us three models to test. The conventional model with Lynn Hayes, where the engagement ends at Battle Slough, a elongated three-part battle from the Sumter County Historical Society, and then this other engagement, the third model, which says that it took place at this other wetland. And what did Gary actually find at the site? And what of it was significant? We started off with landowners that the Sumter County Historical Society was able to put us in contact with. And that was also where they had done some of their own metal detectors. They had found, found and collected an assemblage of musket balls from this one property near Grant Slough. That is where we started. We began going over that property again, and we found more muscaballs in that location and a very high density, or at least the highest density that we'd find at the battlefield itself. We started testing to the west and then following what uplands there were to the north and northwest. Does the battle proceed west like Sumter County Historical Society model and Lynn Hayes' model? Or did it proceed in a different direction closer to Jesse's model? What we found was that there were scatters of musket balls in both directions. However, the density actually proceeds north up the upland instead of directly west. Presumably a light amount of action on the left flank, but ultimately the battle proceeded north-northwest. The unfortunate part was we weren't able to really definitively locate any of the concluding action. The areas that we looked around battle slew. The slew is very disturbed at this point. It's pretty well drained. The area has been logged continually since the end of the Second Seminole War, and then we had a lot of property access issues. Some people were willing to less on the property, others weren't. We weren't able to find any dense assemblage of musket balls along Battle Slough. And then the same thing is when we got close to the, when we were trying to get to the wetlands or the ponds that Marshall had been speaking about, on the preceding island, we found one possible piece of shot, and that's it. Whereas at the wetland crossing before that, you actually have a relatively high density of musket balls and then abruptly ends. It's either we found one wing of the battle or this was the pinch point that we found. It could meet the criteria. It doesn't appear to be nearly as dense as we would expect. However, it's a wetland terrain, so we really didn't go too much into the wet areas. We, we would go into the soggy areas, but not into the standing water 
So it's possible, and, and I would expect that anywhere where the final engagement occurred, you would have a lot more musket balls in the water itself. What do the various calibers of military rifle or musket rounds tell us? We had a low density of scatter to the west and then a moderate density of scatter heading up towards this one pinch point, but it doesn't quite reach the physical area described by Jesse Marshall. And that's where supposedly artifact collecting had gone on. With artifact collectors or looters, relic hunters, whatever you want to call them, it definitely disturbs the signature because this is a very ephemeral site, right? You know, this is essentially, you're seeing the trace of one day's action, maybe two days actions where parts of the November 18th and parts of the November 21st battle would have overlapped. Despite the fact that they're literally throwing out thousands of pieces of lead, it's a very, very light signature. It's not a homestead. It's not a fort. It's nothing like that. It's literally stuff essentially resting on the surface of that time that you're just kind of hoping doesn't get carried away. Natural movement of soil, logging, and then just general use and development of the land, farming, all does its damage to slowly erase that signature. How detrimental are relic hunters to the terrain signature for the battle? Nothing removes it faster than artifact collecting. It instantly, people are literally targeting the feature. Instantly, your archaeological record just goes away. And the problem is, is once the musket balls are removed, or even if they collect them and just displace them somewhere else on the battlefield, like somebody collects them and then decides at the end of the day, okay, I don't want these, I only want to collect these, and they just leave a pile behind. Well, if I find that pile, that now is giving me misinformation. I need to track the location of projectiles as best as possible, because you're looking at different features on musket balls, such as fired or unfired or impacted or non-impacted. If you're finding unfired musket balls, those are often called drop shot. It shows the position of a shooter during the engagement, whereas if you're getting a lot of impacted shots and that represents the position of a target. Normally you would look for rows of ammunition. Like if you were looking at Civil War battlefield, you would have rows of drop shot and rows of impacted shot or, or a scatter of impacted shot with a row of drop shot. In an engagement like this that is a moving battlefield, that is far more difficult to determine. I need everything that I can get to figure out battle position. We're having to do analysis of who was where based on the size and type of muskball that we're finding. Besides the caliber and type of rounds that you found, they also tell you something else. The rounds tell us certain characteristics. The main thing is battle position. It lets us know where people were at, where the engagement was going at. In addition to that, the type of ammunition, whether or not the diameter of the musket ball, what does that coincide with? What caliber weapon is that being used with? And that's an indicator of who was there. Normally, you would attribute smaller musket balls to the Seminole because a lot of them are going to be using hunting weapons, trade guns, a lot of fouling guns. Something that if you shoot a pheasant, it's not going to just obliterate the pheasant. You can still eat something. Those are smaller caliber weapons, maybe in the 40, 50 caliber range. Whereas the U.S. military is primarily using the Model 1816 Springfield um, and then very 1922 modification versions made in Harpers Ferry. They're all 69 caliber weapons using musket balls that are about 0. 0.64 or 0. 0.65 inches in diameter. Those generally tell you the U.S. position. As far as the Seminoles' firearms go, there's this quote from the Knickerbocker or New York Monthly magazine from September 1836. It says, the Seminoles' rifles were as old as I ever saw and not as good as those now made. Their chiefs had good pieces and shot with great precision, but the common men had not much to boast over. From what you found on Seminole War battle sites, how accurate a description is this? One of the interesting things about this and side project that I've delved into was what types of weapons the Seminoles would have been using. Because 
There's a lot of information that usually thought that the Seminoles are using state-of-the-art rifles acquired by Spanish or Spanish Cubans during the war. And this thought is fairly pervasive. On the other hand, Mahon has supported this rifle argument, but he has noted that there should be quite a variation. A lot of smaller caliber weapons, a lot of hunting weapons that they would have used themselves, not for military purposes necessarily. They would have also been using a long history of weapons. They would have been using weapons provided by the Spanish and the uh, during the colonial period. And since you know the Seminole are derived from the creek, and then they're coming to Florida in different ways, that it's quite possible that some of these are weapons that had been received when they were creeks, and that some of these guns, might, the ones that are at least being taken care of, are being handed down over time. What you end up with is a complete mixing of seminal arms. One of the things we found there was a, a musket ball that was 0.7 inches in diameter. So that's too big for a 69 caliber musket by far. But that is something consistent that you'd find with a brown death at 0.75 caliber, or at least something equivalent, some large weapon that would have been a military weapon. It shows that the Seminole are not only using hunting weapons, but are also using these, these large, older colonial military weapons. The other things that we can look at with the shot itself is, is who's making it. The U.S. troops would have been supplied ammunition and pre-made cartridges, whereas the Seminole would have been supplied loose ball, loading them normally. So what does this mean for the size of musket balls or rifle rounds? That means they're also making some of their own ammunition. You can find mold seams and sprue attachment scars on musket balls. That sometimes lets us know who's in that position. For example, lead shot that had mold seam on it and it had a certain offset. It was offset enough to where the ball was no longer spherical and you probably wouldn't have wanted to fire it out of the barrel of a gun. We were able to find several pieces with that same offset, suggesting that the same individual or at the very least, the same mold have been repeatedly used in this area. There are always interesting aspects like that. And then there's the stuff that we found in addition to the musket balls. In trying to identify which rounds belong to which combatants, how much of a wild card are the Creeks with their own weapons and militia? Yes. And the thing is, this also would have gone for any volunteer militia units. It is highly varied as to what they use between the different accounts. Between militia and volunteer units may have been issued weapons by the state or territory. They might be issued weapons by the government, or they might have to furnish their own. And then you might have even mixes of those. Because states did have their own armories, and they were allocated a certain amount of weapons based on certain criteria by the federal government. However, several wars are going on, and you might have your state-designated militias already deployed using the state-provided gun. Well, you might have to have an alternative. You might be purchasing guns. And so sometimes you see accounts of where even units are given state-of-the-art weapons like Hall's rifle, limited use by the U.S. military. On the other hand, you might have even times where troops didn't want to use state-of-the-art guns. I think uh, Chris Kimball has some good references on that. Same thing goes with Creek units. They are also the wild card as far as the weapons. Now, the thing that's noted when they were discussing putting together these Creek regiments, they did mention that they would be equipped by the U.S. government as a volunteer unit. To me, that suggests that they're at least a little bit more likely to have a standardized weapon. They had white turbans to designate them to give them some form of a uniform. They were given some sort of equipment. The other thing is why I would say that even though there is going to be variation, it is more likely that militia and volunteer units would have used consistent ammunition just for supply purposes. The U.S. government wasn't going to make cartridges to fit a whole range of weapons. It is easier just to have everyone using a 69 caliber weapon 
so they can all use the same cartridge than allowing people to either make their own ammunition and risk them running short or to have to supply a whole variety. Was this a process of elimination for who fired what? A lot of archaeology is you have to list what is probably the most likely scenario, and then you have to list what are the alternatives, what we call equifinality, that there are multiple processes that could lead to the same conclusion. What else have you found besides rounds? We found one trigger guard, and this was closer to the assemblage of musket balls that we found. It was interesting because, so first, I wanted to see if I could get some measurements of parts of the bow and all that and, and the old trigger guard and to figure out what it went to. It actually looked pretty similar to the trigger guard used on the model 1816. That's clearly what you would expect to find. That's by far the most common weapon at the battle and that's what you would expect to see components of. I wanted to see if I could get some measurements from the Springfield Armory so I can compare it to what they had on hand. And turns out there aren't standardized blueprints just lying around. It was up to the, the jigs and such, the makers, and then the corresponding jigs at the armory to standardize their weapons. Alexander McKenzie, the curator there, pointed out one thing that hadn't even occurred to me at first, is that the trigger guard was brass. And all of the Springfield Armory and Harbors Ferry Arms Furniture is made out of iron. He asked around on his colleague, and they determined that it was most likely an 18th century Spanish or Dutch military weapon. The way we know it's a military weapon is it has a swivel hole. See, that's a little hole on one of the connecting pieces of the bow of the trigger guard, where you would put a little metal rivet or screw in there that would connect the bottom end of a sling strap for a musket. And that really isn't a component that occurs on civilian weapons. If you want a strap on a civilian weapon at this time, you have to modify the weapon yourself. And usually that's to screw in point or rivet point on the stock of the gun itself. All right. So what does it tell you? Now, what this says is that this confirms that there are, in fact, older weapons being used at the engagement. When you think of Spanish associations with the Netherlands, well, up to the early 1700s, Spain owned portions of the Netherlands, and then you get the various engagements in Europe, such as the War of Spanish Secession, where they eventually lose that, but they still have spirit connections. They're still maintained throughout most of Europe, and the Spanish contract a lot of other countries to make their weapons for them. We don't know the exact age on it, but it suggests that it's at least 40 years older than the battle. This gives some credence to the longevity argument. This is a old colonial Spanish weapon. At the very least, would have been a 69 caliber, but easily could have been a 75 caliber. This matches what we see as a large bullet. So more than likely something the Seminoles would have used. Yes, it's possible because that clearly wouldn't have been a U.S. military weapon. But there is an outside chance that a Creek or even a volunteer could be using it. You do hear a lot about Seminoles being essentially provided trade guns. You have the guns that would have been available in the trade stores. Those are usually kind of cheap weapons. As parts of some of the treaties, they were sometimes given weapons. Quality definitely would have varied. Problem is, a lot of this isn't like really hard sources, but I've heard that the Native Americans in general tended to be harder on their guns, usually not cleaning as well or as often. And then Seminoles also, from what I understand, would not necessarily use ramrods as frequently and tended to load their guns by dropping a ball or sometimes spitting a ball into the barrel and then pounding the butt of the gun on the ground, knocking the ball down. And so you do hear stories that these weapons could be well used. That's definitely a possibility. 
I've seen information that suggests that even some guns, like if they intended to give Native Americans rifled weapons, sometimes they would literally file out the rifling to make them smoothbore again. Or they would give them unfinished smooth versions of what are supposed to be rifles. I've heard just various degrees talking about the quality. On the other hand, at the same time, you also have accounts that say that chiefs were given these prize guns. It's very possible that that confirms the nature of the variation in age of the weapons there. What else did you find that's of significance? We found a handful of other potentially related objects, historic objects. There was a stirrup, could be from the battle, pretty degraded iron stirrup, but this has also been agricultural area since then. Could be related might be just historic. Same thing, there was some other brass objects, copper objects. However, one thing that was distinctly from the time period would have been one, what we call Kakaskia point. That is a rolled brass arrowhead. It would have been made out of some sort of cut up sheet brass from like a bucket and then rolled into a little cone. In addition to that, there were other Native American and prehistoric components there. We did find a limited quantity of seminal brushed pottery, which coincides with the Central County Historical Society's use of that map, where part of it highlighted that the battle would have proceeded through some seminal agricultural fields. The amount of seminal artifacts that we found suggests that they were definitely in the area, but that that itself was not a village which meets with the accounts that you would have had that small village where the November 18th battle started nearby, and then there would have been much larger villages such as Jumper's Village, also in the vicinity. This would have been sideland for them, and that's what the limited amount of ceramics suggest. There are a series of prehistoric sites. Both the landowners had already identified that. We were able to track more. The prehistoric sites are a good sign of seminal activity because seminals reoccupy these sites, often for the same reasons, usually access to fresh water, and in this area especially, they're relatively well-drained. It's high ground. The other thing is the prehistoric sites show you can connect between the prehistoric sites, and that gives a glimpse into the trail system that the prehistoric people would have had. Seminole are using the same trails. They would have followed the same uplands and all that. The trail systems that Call uses to get to the November 18th engagement, the trail systems that people like Gardner used to reach the concluding engagement of the stand, that all comes into play. How significant to your survey was the non-cooperation of certain landowners who did not give you access to their property? What kind of gaps did that cause? Definitely makes or breaks finding the full bounds of the battle. We got a decent part of the action, but we weren't able to really get access to properties east of where we started on Grant Slough. This would have encompassed the entire area where the November 18th battle would have taken place, prevents getting to see the start of the November 21st battle. We were having to use Grant Slough as starting place. We assume that there was action beforehand, but this is the basis for where we see the troops move. Luckily, it's a good point landscape-wise because it's where troops would have had to make the decision in which direction they were going to go, whether or not basically they were going to go follow uplands or whether they were going to go directly into wetlands, to which it looks like they did actually a mixture of both. It really does put a hold on getting to see the entire battle. And then it means that we don't get to see any evidence of where people moved in and out of the battle, or at least the U.S. troops moved in and out from the east or southeast. And then the same thing with access around Battle Slough is the more areas you can check, the more likely you are to find that portion. It was definitely a, a limiting factor. And that's why I wouldn't say that we completely located the bounds of the battlefield or anything like that. What we did is we helped confirm the general location and assembled the history on it while leaving recommendations for what future work can be done. Why are landowners reluctant to give you access to their property to do a survey? 
a lot of it just comes down to privacy and land access rights. Property is probably the most important value in American society property ownership. And so people take that seriously. Given the modern political climate, people are a lot more suspicious of other people coming onto their land. You have lots of misconceptions that the government wants to take your land. If you find an archaeological site, sometimes people think that that really limits what they can do on their property or that their property will be commandeered by the government. Of course, none of that's true. The state is actually usually trying to get rid of land. They don't really want to buy any more. They have to offer you fair values. And again, they can't just take land from you like that. Having an archaeological site on your property usually doesn't limit anything. Anything that would require archaeological work would have already triggered other wetland permits and stuff like that. Usually that's more of an issue of larger development. And that's something that they would still have to go through the process anyway. That land to the east was going to be turned into a neighborhood. They would still have to have archaeological work done with or without me on the property. It's just part of the area we're in. Some people were absolutely thrilled to have us on the property. Some people really don't care, but they don't mind. Some people are just thrilled and just want to know all the information that you can tell them about their property. It varies. We try to let people know what our plans are, what agreements we can make with them. We're happy to openly discuss ownership of artifacts and work out whatever deal is most amicable to them. It just doesn't always work out. What was your overall cocoa finding? The idea was incorporate terrain into this. We were able to work that into our map. And we were also able to use the terrain to get a possible idea of maybe what the Seminole were doing during the engagement, since they're not really represented in the written literature. We produced a cocoa map for each side. And essentially, the way we interpret it was that you have a battle line that's facing southwest to northeast along this bend in the hammock. And the U.S. troops advance from there. You got the creeks on the left. Tennesseans on the right, regulars and Floridians in the middle. Battle line just gets sheared away. The Tennesseans end up just going straight into a wetland. So that's where the accounts of the chest high water and all that are coming from. They just walk straight into mud and were removed from the engagement. They were likely chasing the Seminole and the Seminole diverted them over there. Additionally, it could have also been just the sheer number of people on the landmass and only so much dry ground to go around. And so some people ended up in the swamp. But nonetheless, they get diverted and keep going away. The creek, on the other hand, probably stayed on more of the dry ground to the south and west and were able to at least maintain some vantage point over the way the battle progressed. It's quite possible that they over-pursued and went too far and maybe even had to backtrack up to get back to where the final defensive stand was. And then meanwhile, the regulars are actually the unit that follows up the peninsula. So that's where we see a moderate density of projectiles. What are you able to tell us about the Indian path that the Indians took that crossed the river to the other side? This would have been some of the limited high ground in the middle of the swamp, right in between the sloughs. They would have followed that. The trail that Gardner uses to eventually get to the concluding position would have been a Native American trail that would have been in this portion of the battlefield. So we weren't able to really identify where the concluding engagement took place. I have an idea of where this trail was. You definitely have the large uplands we were given complete access to. 
There's just one gap in between uplands that we weren't really able to address. Unlike today's federal government that builds bridges to nowhere, the Seminole did not go down trails to nowhere. If it reaches a river, one must presume that they actually crossed the river and went to the other side. The Seminole would have used a trail on this network of prehistoric trails to get to that wetland. They would have known the crossing point. It is not a retreat. It was an intentional withdrawal to a defensive position that they led them into this. The Seminole were able to retreat to the defensive position. There was clearly some way of getting across. The Seminole have amazing abilities to traverse water, especially relative to the U.S. regulars and the volunteers, but they're not magic. And yet the Army was reluctant to send a force across the river. Why do you think that was? I'm quite sure it was an optical illusion as to how deep it was, and I think a lot of it was the trepidation of the soldiers to cross the water. Because in every engagement for this, water was a very, very bad thing. That usually was the concluding part of the battle anyway. We don't know precisely why the Seminole crossed the river there. However, Kakoa can provide us with some clues. Going back to the Kakoa on the Seminole perspective, the way we view it was not that the Seminole were ever really being forced back. They had probably sustained a fair amount of losses, particularly Cloud's unit was sustained a significant amount of losses in the November 18th engagement. It was pretty harsh fighting for several hours. But the idea here appears to be that they were trying to slowly divert and shear off portions of Call's force as they get farther and farther into the Wahoo Swamp. That comes with some way of diverting the Tennesseans out into the middle of nowhere. So the Tennesseans, who are probably the slowest moving through poor terrain, they get completely removed from the action. So after the initial volleys and the initial fighting in the hammocks, the Tennesseans don't get involved in the rest of the battle. On the other hand, the idea was to slowly whittle away portions of Call's unit and to draw them into defensive positions like the other final defensive position. The other thing is you have Seminole are also trying to block and defend some of their villages. If the Tennesseans had continued far enough north, they might have actually wandered into Jumper's village. However, it's quite possible that Jumper would have had a small reserve up there to protect the village. Unlike the small village that was burned on November 18th, Jumper's village was probably significant. The other thing is there's the impression that Jumper may have been waiting farther to the south as well with other units ready to ambush anyone who comes through that area. However, they weren't really engaged and most of the action instead goes against Cloud's force at that defensive stand. From this, you can draw some conclusions about seminal actions looks like the intentional use of the landscape by the Seminole to gradually weaken what was presumably a equal-sized or larger force. Earlier, you talked about Jesse Marshall and where he posited the major action took place. How much can Kokoa support that? The two-ponded area that Jesse mentioned is the most accurate, at least physiographically. To me, Battle Slough doesn't really meet a lot of the criteria, but again, battle flu has been pretty significantly altered you know, in the last 200 years. What kind of workarounds did you devise to deal with this? What we could do with the property, especially where the properties where we found most of the musket balls, is my coworker and I walk in just slightly different bearings from the same point and walk through a completely different number of wetlands to get to however far we are going. It really depends on a person's path as to how many wetlands they go through. Acknowledging the alterations of 200 years, how close were you able to locate the pinch point that Jesse Marshall was talking about? 
Yes, we did find a natural upland going through the area that eventually just abruptly stopped. I can definitely see trails going through there. Now, the area has been cleared nowadays. It's largely devegetated. Rocks have been moved around and such. The landscape has been shifted a little bit. But we were able to find the general upland, but no, not necessarily a concluding pinch point. There are several landscape features that are possible, but nothing that's absolute. What unexpected insights did you gain from this survey? Some of the interesting things that I realized was going into this, I had always thought of the Seminole Wars as a series of generals operating under their own plan. You had Jessup constructing forts like Armstrong and Dade and Foster, and that seemed like, okay, that must have been his plan. And Scott has this complex campaign of three armies coming into the same area. Later on, you get Zachary Taylor and you get the square system and the forts. But what I kind of realized, especially when you read the military correspondence, is that there was a lot of continuity on the war. You do have problems with other wars going on. So the fact that the same troops are required in both Alabama and Florida simultaneously, and a lot of the same office, there is still an overall plan. That's something that was really clarified for me, that Call was not just allowed to go out and do what he wanted, that he was still given instructions from the interim secretary of war at the time, Benjamin Butler, that he was supposed to establish these depots in certain places. Now, after that, the mission was pretty vague and just removed Seminole from the cove of the Withlacoochee. There was a certain amount of consistent things like the formation of the Creek Regiment. That wasn't just a spontaneous thing that happens under Call. This is organized by Jessup and something that had been already discussed under Scott, and probably actually preceded the war and been discussed in other engagements as well. There was just a greater deal of continuity than I expected. How much did working with the community aid your project? That's the great thing that you've seen in this podcast is there's just a ton of people have a wealth of knowledge working with the local community and working with other historians. Some of these people are full-time Seminole Wars historians. Some of these people are part-time. Some of these people just have good local or traditional knowledge. And that's really made this possible, is getting to talk to local historians and, and local people who just lived in the area, getting their information on. You do have some regrets, though, for this survey. We really weren't able to fully validate or invalidate any of the models because we didn't fully assess the third part of the engagement described by the Sumter County Historical Society. We weren't able to find a definitive concluding position. But we gained a lot of knowledge by talking to these people and hearing their perspective. And it's also a nice way of getting their information out. Some of these people have a lot of good information. It just may not ever really make it into any historical analysis. This gave a way to highlight some of their interpretations and gave us a lot of information moving forward. Who sponsored your work and what would you like to do with the report? This was another National Park Service American Battlefield Protection Grant. So it'll go into their reservoir on battlefield reports, which can sometimes be a little bit hard to get a hold of. But we'll use the report to give presentations, given a couple of presentations on the topic to the public. I've got a couple of scholarly presentations that will be used, branched into side projects. Now I'm now looking at seminal arms, compared data that we had from Camp Izzard, as well as sites that we'll be looking at in the future. So to work on projects like that, we would like to help Sumter County Historical Society continue to improve its museum and its interpretation of local history. Hopefully that information will go forward in providing them more interpretive value. We'll provide copies of the reports or portions of the report to landowners to let them know what they can do to maybe take care of the site a little bit better, what they can do, things that will avoid harming it anymore.
We just want to let Sumter County know more of its own history. It's how we end up employing aspects of the report rather than, than just handing out copies of the report. And you don't feel like you're finished. You'd like to be able to come back and do further investigation. We're always interested in expanding this. There's more work that could be done. And if that has added value to the locals, then it would be worth pursuing. I would happily go back on some of the land that we weren't granted access to on another project. The more access you give to people, the more information is then available for people to understand their own heritage. If you own a lot of land in the area and you make it completely inaccessible to others, then you're closing off that history to certain people. No harm comes from it. Landowners have full control over their artifacts after they're done. Their properties are left in the same state in which we found it. Any destructive properties of digging tends to be very limited and goes away very quickly. It really costs landowners nothing. I'm more than happy to keep landowner information private to avoid people either illegally looting or even coming up just asking to relic hunt on their property. It really costs landowners nothing. On the other hand, I'm happy to help them out in any way that they see fit. Some people a lot of times want more environmental information on their land. So it's like, all right, I'll dig up some environmental information and something that might benefit you if you're willing to give me access. That ought to wrap it up for our episode today. Sean Norman, once again, thanks for joining us for The Seminole Wars. Ah, well, like I said, uh, thanks for being here, and this is definitely a, a topic I was looking forward to talking about. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Reedy Onman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.